All right, so I, today I'd like to welcome Dr. Nancy Hardy. Uh, Dr. Hardy is the director of uh, allogeneic transplantation. To give you a little background, she got her MD at University of Washington, um, followed up with her medicine training at Duke, um, did a uh, medical oncology fellowship at Duke, um, an ID fellowship at, uh, at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH, um, and did a research uh, fellowship following that. She stayed on uh, faculty there for a number of years um, at the National Cancer Institute, um, uh, focused on a number of uh, research endeavors. Came here at University of Maryland in 2014 where she's taken up the role that I previously mentioned. Um, thought she'd be a perfect person to talk to us about um, stem cell transplantation because um, it's something you know, whether it's surgical, medical, whatever problems, um, we're gonna, we're seeing more uh, cross-specialty uh, um, management of these, of these individuals. So thanks, Dr. Hart. Thank you. Can you hear me? It's working okay? Yeah? Um, so hello. Uh, as I go through this, this is the first sort of time I've spoken to a critical care audience. And so if things come up that you've got questions, don't wait till the end because we'll probably run out of time before I get to the end and I'm happy to be interrupted. Um, so as we go through this. And I used the title that was provided for me and tried to stick to the topic. So I thought for this group, because, uh, we, because you have such important work to do, that I would start with sort of the take-home messages and hopefully fill them in as we go through. But this way, if you get through the first five or six slides, you've gotten the points that I wanted to make. So key point number one, thinking about bone marrow transplant and what critical care folks should know, transplanters treat people um, with blood and marrow transplantation because it cures an otherwise lethal disease. Um, and so people, when they get to the ICU, may not look like they're going to make it, but they will. <laughs> and they will because at Maryland, really, more than any other place I've been, and I have had the opportunity to be at some pretty fabulous places, we invest everything in our patients, not just the transplant, but every ICU I've worked with invests so much in each individual patient, and we actually get them through. And our transplant outcomes reflect that, we exceed expectations in terms of how patients do. So key point number one is we're in it to win it. Key point number two, not all bone marrow transplant is the same. I'll go through some of the differences as we go through, but we talk about BMT and this is a BMT patient. Well, there's an autologous BMT patient and there's an allogeneic BMT patient. And when we think BMT in our minds, we're probably thinking about an allogeneic BMT patient. Autologous transplant has evolved over time. Um, when I started in practice, it really was a pretty heavy-duty, um, high-mortality procedure, something like between 10 and 15% of people would not make it out of the hospital going in for an autologous transplant. Now that rate is less than 3%. Um, it's high-dose chemotherapy, but we've harvested the patient's peripheral blood stem cells beforehand and so that the recovery after transplant with high-dose therapy is often faster than it would be with conventional chemotherapy. <clears throat> um, in contrast, allotransplant is really immunotherapy, um, and we're going after the graft versus leukemia effect that's mediated by the transplanted immune system. Um, and sometimes it's marrow replacement for a bone marrow failure disorder that's not malignant. So currently, autologous stem cell transplant has a mortality rate overall of less than 3%. Going back over the more than you know, 1,000 
transplants that have been done here, that number is less than 1%. And so um, when our patients are in the ICU and things are not looking good, it's often helpful to keep in mind this isn't probably one of that less than 1%. This is somebody that we're going we're gonna to pull through this and is going to leave the hospital to go on and have a functional life without cancer. In contrast, allogeneic transplant has a 20 to 40% transplant-related mortality. Uh, it's usually not in the hospital that first time, but sometime in the first year or two, uh, 20 to 40% of patients that undergo allogeneic transplant will succumb about, and from something that's transplant-related. So we'll get into some of those details, but that, they really are a very challenging patient population. <clears throat> so <clears throat> let's see. Am I going the right way? Yeah. Key point number three, never underestimate the potential for a transplant patient to deteriorate quickly. So this is kind of in the context of um, when you get the call from the BMT unit saying, we got somebody that's sick, can you come take a look? Um, so the first thing that is not on here is that we're very um, sort of control freaks and we don't call you probably soon enough. And so number one is we wouldn't have called if this patient wasn't really about to go downhill. Number two is we have done everything possible to make it the odds stacked up against the patient getting through whatever it is that they're facing. Um, they've got a line in, we've given high-dose chemotherapy that's um, damaged their skin, that's damaged their GI tract from stem to stern. They're neutropenic, they don't have any lymphocytes. So when they start to look bad, it could be anything or, in the case of our patients, usually more than one thing. And um, so when thinking about you know, sort of bed management, I've got two beds and I've got three people on hold, we put the plea out there that we probably don't call soon enough. Um, so key point number four um, is to be aggressive. And um, so my friend and colleague from the NIH who does all the NCI transplants says, you never regret doing a procedure or getting a study. And I would say in our, trans, in our patients, that's true. And you're always reluctant. Their platelets are low, they're fragile. You know, they're, it might sit them back a little bit. You never regret the information that you gain from doing an aggressive diagnostic procedure. Um, and number five, <clears throat> the timing of complications really does influence what the differential diagnosis is and what the initial management is. And, and it took me 20 years to sort of get a feel for it. So it's not something that anyone's going to know other than to know, wait, transplant is different in the first month than any other point. We need to make sure that we're actively engaging the transplant team to figure out how we're going to manage this. So early on, before they engraft, it's usually drug toxicity or infection, sometimes bleeding. And then as they get to the point where their cells are starting to recover, the bone marrow is taking hold. Um, uh, they can have some inflammatory stuff that's reactive. Um, and as you get later out, they're usually out of the hospital. Then you get into drug toxicity, sometimes graft-versus-host disease. Usually graft-versus-host disease, they don't, the first stop isn't the ICU. Um, they spend a few days to weeks on the BMT unit before they develop an infection that puts them in the ICU, but it's usually not the first thing that we think of when somebody is, is just getting sick. <clears throat> um, and then relapse is possible the later you get out, although if it's really early after transplant, again, the prognosis is pretty grim, and so it's not too often if we know that that's what's happening, that they would go to the ICU, hopefully. Um, 
So, <clears throat> so I tell when I sit down with a patient beforehand to try to figure out somebody refers this patient for transplant. So I have this conversation with them that I'm about to have with you. Um, so I need four things to pull somebody through transplant. Number one, I need a disease I can treat, a disease whose outcomes are improved by transplant. So most often that's a leukemia. Occasionally it's a bone marrow failure disorder or a lymphoma. Um, but, the, but I need to know that there's evidence that what I'm going to put somebody through, particularly when I'm talking about allogeneic transplant, has a better chance of long-term survival than if I don't do it. Um, <clears throat> and um, the second thing then that I need is to know that I can get the patient through it. So before someone's ever been transplanted, they had to cross kind of several hurdles. Uh, heart function has to be normal. Lung function has to be really pretty good. Kidney function has to be able to tolerate not just the chemotherapy that we're going to give, but the tacrolimus that I give after that that is going to probably take the GFR down by 20-30% until I'm able to stop it. Um, and a liver that can tolerate the azoles that I'm going to put on it and also get through the, the conditioning regimen as well. So they've had extensive testing to make sure they are not perfect. Many of them have gone through a year or more of intensive therapy to even get to my clinic. Um, but I have to feel like I can knock any organ down by 20 or 30 percent and they can still walk away feeling like it was worth it. <clears throat> and um, so, but the, and the other thing I'll say is that if you're having, so transplant, we are transplanting older and older patients. The oldest one ever is probably mid-80s, but here at the University of Maryland, the oldest one that I've transplanted is 76 with acute leukemia that was uh, chemorefractory and he's doing great. Um, it was a hard first year, but he's doing great. Um, but if somebody comes in and we have this whole long conversation and then I have them start signing forms and all of our forms now have code status on it with the moles, right? And so we get through this whole thing and I tell them how I'm going to, you know, spend a year of their life, you know, kind of taking things apart and putting it back together again. And then they say, yeah, no, but if anything happens to me, um, I, I, I don't want to be resuscitated, I don't want to be on tubes. That for me is actually kind of a deal breaker because I'm about to spend a year of their life and their resources and their caregiver and the clinic and the staff and getting them through something that, um, that I need to know that they're all in as well. And so when people land in the ICU, especially early after transplant, they've had a good performance status coming in. They are on board with doing whatever it takes to get through potentially curative but life-threatening therapy. And so that's the sort of mindset that we have when we, when we send somebody. If I'm talking about allogeneic transplant, I'm looking at whether they have a good donor option that I can get to in time. Probably the biggest revolution that's happened in transplant over the past 10 years is being able to use haploidentical relatives, so, <clears throat> um, which has taken you know, from being having maybe a 25 to 30 percent chance of having a donor if you have a sibling, um, and less if you don't, up to closer to 90 percent if you've got living parents or living kids or a sibling that's biologically related because there's a 50 percent chance for each one of those that they would be a full match. Um, and then in terms of autologous transplant, I need to know that I can get the stem cells out of them. And so they need their own donor too, which is themselves, because they had so much prior chemotherapy that I can't mobilize the stem cells from the bone marrow and collect enough to do a safe transplant. 
And at the end of the day, I'm going to need to get their immune system sort of back up and functioning. There's about a six-month period where I'm suppressing it and letting it off so that it's not overactive or uh, misbehaving. And then the next six months, we're letting things settle in. We give them their immunizations. And so that's a commitment of the patient's self and family member of a year of their time uh, in my clinic, which is happening as we speak, <laughs> um, to, to really get that immune constitution. So, so that's, those are the key take-home messages that I'll try to defend going through the rest of my talk. Um, when I talk about, again, trying to identify if a patient has the resilience to get through transplant, I like to think of what at the end of the year or two or three years down the road, what I know they're going to be facing because everyone that goes through a transplant faces it. So first of all, we have the conditioning effects of total body irradiation. We don't use it all the time, but we use it a lot. We use at least a little of it. Um, and for acute leukemias, especially ones that have been hard to treat, we actually use a fair dose of total body irradiation. <clears throat> the chemotherapy that we use with it or instead of it um, also has effects. Damaging tissues that have low um, repair or slow repair potential. Um, so fertility is almost always affected. Um, um, hypogonadism, so people have hypotestosteronemia, uh, growth and uh, development delay for kids especially, thyroid dysfunction, dental issues. Those are things that we just know going in and we actually start looking for them about six months out after the transplant. They've had radiation, they're going to get cataracts most likely. Um, and they also ha uh, get problems with dry mouth, sicka syndrome. Um, osteoporosis, uh, bone necrosis, and lung complications. <clears throat> Those are all exacerbated when we get chronic graft-versus-host disease, um, leading to immune dysfunction, and so a functional immune deficiencies, um, and late infections are an issue as well. So I know that although the things on the right side of the screen don't happen to everybody, um, the things on the left do, and the things on the right happen often enough that when I'm looking at somebody beforehand, I'm really clearing all of those lungs, all of those organs to see if they have adequate function. <clears throat> I'm going to get a little bit into the details of actually what we do, because I think it makes it more um, understandable and memorable. Um, so now autologous transplantation, again, high-dose chemotherapy for which I need to rescue the bone marrow <clears throat> with the patient's own stem cells, um, requires that I get their stem cells from the bone marrow out into the blood where I can collect them. We can and used to get them out of the bone marrow, um, but it's painful. The stem cells come out of the blood better. Patients recover faster. Um, have a reduced incidence of infection. And in some cases where the bone marrow may be a, a, a site of disease, actually have less contamination with tumor if you use peripheral blood mobilized stem cells. So mobilization in patients with cancer, uh, we'll often use chemotherapy and collect on recovery from that because chemotherapy um, has, uh, not all, but most chemotherapy has an ability to, to generate stem cell um, renewal and turnover. Um, we also use neupogen, which doesn't increase stem cell turnover, but it does disrupt their uh, niche, if you will, and so they are mobilized into the peripheral blood. And these days, we can also use plerixifor, which is a CXCR4 antagonist, and that, again, on a temporary basis, disrupts 
um, the stem cell niche and, and allows them to circulate in the peripheral blood in numbers that then I can collect and put in the freezer. So we collect them, uh, we store them, uh, we store them with DMSO, uh, which patients then get at the end, and it's uh, got its own set of side effects that I'll touch on a bit later. Uh, they're stored in liquid nitrogen, so we don't have to plug anything in, um, other than the alarm system that we use to make sure that everything's functioning properly. We always have a backup freezer, um, because we're going to give a dose of chemotherapy uh, or multiple chemotherapy drugs that we know will ablate the bone marrow, and so that absent stem cell rescue, it would take probably three months for there to be enough immune or uh, hematopoietic reconstitution for them to maybe leave the hospital or maybe not. Maybe in that three months period of time, there would actually be some infection or bleeding event that precluded their ability to recover or leave the hospital. Um, so, <clears throat> and, um, so 24 hours or so after they get their chemotherapy, we let it all clear out, we infuse the cells. <clears throat> and when, when cells, frozen cells, go in, it really is quite predictable when they should come back out. When, so I, within about 24 hours, they've home to the bone marrow. They're there. You can't see them anymore. They're gone. Um, any uh, neutrophils or red cells that were in the product didn't survive the freezing, so they don't help us at all. Um, after we infuse them. And it really is pretty predictably nine days that we should start to see the white count go from zero or less than 0 0.1, whatever that is, um, to 0 0.2, which is actually a huge difference, and you know what's happening. So by day nine, if I don't see it, because one of my jobs is to oversee that, I get a little nervous, and I hope I've stored some extra cells. Not because I don't think they're ever going to recover, but if they're not coming up by day, point, by day nine, I think, what, where are they? It's that predictable that the dose that we've given, when they are thawed and infused into the patient, it should be by day nine that I see it. Now, it's usually not till day 11 or 12 that they get to the point where they can actually protect people day, for white blood cells, neutrophils, day 13 to 14 for platelets. But it's amazing how predictable it is. And so when it doesn't happen on time, I start to wonder what happened. And things can happen. And if I can or uh, will do anything about it. <clears throat> so risks of mobilization and collection. One in 10,000 donors, and we know this from every transplant, is submitted for sort of research outcomes through a congressionally mandated database. Um, and so we are able to collect data on every single transplant that goes on, and that data is freely available to anyone in the world. But one of the things that we learned about it is that there is a 1 in 10,000 risk of a catastrophic splenic rupture after a normal volunteer takes enough GCSF to mobilize their peripheral blood stem cells. I've never seen it. Um, but you tell the patient or the donor, the spleen is like a sponge. Its job is to recycle all of your cells. And you're going to have so many cells that the spleen is actually going to swell. And if it swells, it's fragile, and it has a chance of tearing. So rupture is in this setting usually more of a tear than a, you know, sort of a, a burst like a water balloon, which is how I initially thought of it. And I say, so if you start to have pain in your left side, that's where your spleen is, you go to the ER and you say, I'm a donor, look at my spleen. Something, CT scan, ultrasound, you must look at my spleen. My doctor said, if, you, if I have any pain, you must look at my spleen. Because for about a week, they're really at risk. 
that's more of an ER thing than an ICU thing, but if you ever have a donor who's got, you know, belly pain, it's a splenic rupture until you prove it's not. Um, central line, you guys are all used to those, but I will say, I just am going to interject a little anecdote. So I got a call when I was in attending on the BMT unit from a patient who had mobilized for autologous donation, had collected, had gone home with their tunneled um, catheter, and we use a dialysis catheter, it's a, a big stiff catheter, and had home health come to the house to teach them how to take care of the line, which needs to be flushed every day. And so we get a call that um, a patient has presented to an outside ER um, by 911, and the story as it unfolds um, is that the patient went, the home health was there, was training the wife how to flush the line, and during the line flush, the, she couldn't get the cap off, and blood was leaking, and you know, so she was nervous, and um, the patient went down and uh, became unresponsive, needed to be resuscitated, so went, underwent CPR. Um, and by the time he presented to the outside hospital, had, had recovered um, in terms of, of circulation um, and breathing, um, but had clearly had a stroke. And so we bring him here to our neurointensive care unit. And so what happened is the line stayed open that whole time. He went down. He got CPR, he had an air embolism, he had a patent foramen ovale, and he had air up one half of his head, which was really cool. When you looked at the MRI, and I, for the next talk I'll print out the MRI, half of it was white, which is sort of amazing. Eventually it probably all dissipated. The guy had a complete recovery and went on to get his autologous transplant with high-dose chemotherapy and is in remission, right? So, and, and the neurointensivist who was taking care of the patient said, you know, this, when people present with an MRI like that, they usually don't recover. <laughs> and so this was sort of her first um, recovery. He recovered in days, actually. It was really quite amazing how quickly he recovered. So central lines can cause problems. Citrate reactions, everybody gets some citrate reaction. So right before I handed my pager off to somebody before I started speaking today, because I've got someone collecting, and I and the message was, and if somebody calls from a phoresis, someone needs to go see this patient. So citrate is the anticoagulant I use, and I use it because it is metabolized by the liver really quickly. So if I get into any trouble with bleeding in my thrombocytopenic patients, um, I can turn it off, turn it down, whatever, and it's gone in a few minutes. It's unlike heparin, which is, hangs around for a while, so it's easy to use that way. But it causes hypocalcemia. Okay, that's that's the mechanism of action. I need that in my apheresis machine. I don't really need that in the patient. But the patient feels it, so I actually have an infusion of electrolytes that I'm co-infusing at the same time. And they're supposed to tell us if they have any numbness, if they feel like their face is vibrating, their sort of unusual sort of reactions that they'll tell us about. And where you can get in trouble is with a related donor who really, really wants their brother to get this product. And they're afraid that if they tell you that there's a problem, you're going to stop. Um, or, and they're small. They're usually smaller than the donor. So it's a female into a male, and it's a petite female. And, and the, the very most likely is, and they don't speak English very well. And they don't tell you when their lips are vibrating, or when they're feeling tingly, or when, until they're crying because everything's like gone to hell and, and, and they've got this sense of doom and they, you know, all of their muscles are twitching and they have tetany. Once I've seen it, but everyone that does apheresis has seen it once because, and 
no matter how often you tell patients there's one that's not going to tell you anything until it's really too late. And you turn it off, and the stuff goes away, but none of the side effects go away nearly as quickly as you know the liver is metabolizing that citrate. They just don't. You get the EKG, and it's got... So that's where I might call the ICU. The nurses are going to want me to call the ER, because that's the fastest way to get them out. But actually, technically, they're inpatients, and that's when we might. I haven't... In the one time I saw it, we actually were able to get everything calmed back down and let the patient go and discharge. But it was... Impressive. So citrate toxicity happens to everybody, gets out of hand rarely, but not zero. Um, the other reaction that I didn't put on the list um, is HIT. So when I was at the NIH, we had, we were transplanting older and older patients, um, and we had a 79-year-old whose sister was 84 and um, developed um, HIT, actually thrombocytopenia with a thromboembolic phenomenon, um, after the low dose of heparin that they used. And that's when they started not using heparin, but only using citrate. And when I came here, that's what I do here as well. So <clears throat> um, other problems shouldn't be too much of an issue, except for maybe in kids. But, you know, you are, you've got a big can of Coke out of their body and in the apheresis machine, which you can replace at least the volume part of it with some extra fluids. Once I got into trouble, where... So these things are fairly well automated. The patient comes in, they get on the machine, I go see them, everything's fine, it all. But this patient with amyloid, so amyloid's one of those things that never underestimate it. So patient with cardiac amyloid had signed all the consents, he wasn't my individual patient, um, but he could not tolerate this volume shift. And he, I saw him, how do you feel? I feel crappy, I always feel crappy. I feel as crappy as I usually feel, I feel okay. Um, and his blood pressure went down, it responded to fluids, everything was fine, and then he was gone. He responded to resuscitation, went to the ICU, coded again, and was gone. So it's the only time I've ever seen it, but I've come to respect this. I mean, when the nurse calls me now and says the blood pressure's down a little bit, it's no longer a, you know, I'll give him a fluid bolus, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's in the back of my head is, what's the diagnosis? It doesn't happen very often, but amyloid is something that, you know, the proteins infiltrate all of the organs. None of them respond the way they're supposed to. They don't respond. They get arrhythmias that you can't do anything about because all of the conduction system has been um, displaced by proteins. So we had one death on a collection. And the other thing that can happen, and I've not seen either, is that the tubing, just like with the dialysis circuits, that every once in a while you get somebody that's allergic to the tubing, to the plastic in the tubing, and there's not much you can do besides stop the procedure and give them steroids. Um, <clears throat> so risks of a high-dose chemotherapy, I think people have probably seen, but people get aplasia on purpose. We're doing a bone marrow transplant, so we oblate the bone marrow. And during that period of time, they don't have neutrophils. They don't make platelets. They don't make red cells. So we transfuse them enough red cells to keep them alive and keep all their organs oxygenated. Uh, we give them enough platelets to keep them from bleeding, which is sometimes more than the blood bank wants us to give because they've had TBI and they, they're oozing. But, so we try to sort of negotiate that platelet shortage versus um, aplasia that I caused. Um, organ failure, um, most commonly renal um, and lung. Um, direct hits from either chemotherapy or radiation. And again, some of that is reversible at six months, we measure, or three months, we measure um, lung function in everybody, and you see everybody's has declined somewhat. Some people, by a year, it's all back up to normal again, but, but it really does have a measurable impact on organ function. 
Um, let's see. Risks of reinfusion I'll mention, because we could call you with this one. So DMSO, uh, dimethyl sulfur oxide, I think. Anyway, DMSO um, is um, the preservative that we use to keep the cells alive in the freezer. It stabilizes or actually permeabilizes the membranes, prevents crystals from forming so that then when the cells are thawed, um, they're not toxic. We don't wash it off because the, from the minute we bring the water bath to the bedside, we bring a tank of liquid nitrogen to the bedside, and when everything is ready and we've identified the products and checked off that this really is the transplant that's meant for them, we put it in a 37 degree water bath and then we hang it. So it's actually still chilly when we hang it, but we've munched up all the ice crystals, we get it in there because the cells are never happy out and thawed for even a minute. So that's how fast they get reinfused, and I reinfuse as fast as they'll tolerate. DMSO, there's some genetic variable that I don't know what it is. Patients either smell garlic, or they smell cream corn, or they can't smell it at all. And I'm luckily in the last category because I, when you infuse them, you can. And then the patient actually kind of smells that way for a day or two, so I'm told anyway. So that no one really likes that smell going into their body. So it's unpleasant, sort of dysphoric. Most of them will have flushing reactions. Occasionally, people will become tachycardic. They'll drop their sats. Um, we get through all of that. We pre-med with steroids. Usually, we get Benadryl. Um, but occasionally, someone will have a true allergy and anaphylaxis. Um, the incidence of death with stem cell reinfusion is very low. It's much, well below 1%. Um, but it happens. It's probably in the 1 to 4 or 500, because although I've never seen it, most, a, a lot of my colleagues have seen a death during infusion. <clears throat> so risks. So we've got the patient condition. They got chemotherapy, radiation. They got their stem cells. We're waiting. Day nine, finally, here they come. They're coming. And there's no competition for those cells. And so you're giving neupogen, and the cells are cycling, and maybe you've got a little infection, and then they start going nuts. And they grow in very quickly. So some, instead of going kind of doubling to 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.8, they went from 0.2 to four overnight. And those patients get into trouble with engraftment syndrome. So engraftment syndrome, when we measure patient stats every day on rounds, and we do it ourselves, and every day we get used to it. Okay, this patient, they live at 99, or 100, one of the two. And they live at 99, they live at 99, and the cells are coming in today, and today they're 95. You're like, okay, no one's called you about it because their stats are still 95. In two hours, that patient's stats might be 84 on oxygen, and in another hour and a half, they're intubated. It can, when it happens, engraftment syndrome can happen very quickly, and it's a, let's get steroids in and get them to the ICU so that, because in addition to what it is, is a third space phenomenon, and it happens quickly, and it's a cytokine-mediated event, and they third space, the other thing that happens over hours is that, you know, their intravascular volume goes way down, their creatinine goes up, you know, they're hypoxic, and it's all non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and it responds to steroids because it's, if you can shut down the, the cytokines, you can reverse the process. So most of that's on us. Don't miss it when they're sad to 95% because the dose of steroids really can alter the whole event. We actually don't see it. We've changed some of the parameters about the way that we do transplants in the ALA setting mostly. And it really is uncommon to see full-blown. Now we'll see a little, you know, maybe a low-grade fever, and maybe their stats are a tiny bit down, and the cranny's a little bit up, and I'll just give them a touch of steroids, and they're fine. But it really can, and, and in some settings still would, progress over 
hours to something that's life-threatening but reversible, steroids, engraftment syndrome. Um, another thing that we see that is part of that 1% for the autos is somebody that comes in feeling great, and within 24 hours you find out that they have RSV or they have paraflu, and they were exposed three days ago. It's not like you missed it. There was nothing to see. And they do fine through everything until their white count starts to recover. And then there's a massive inflammatory effect. They end up in the hospital intubated, or in the ICU intubated. And that's not so steroid responsive, at least as far as we know, because the driver is still there. The virus is still there. And, it's, um, and that's, that's probably where most of the 1% is, is that there's an iris syndrome, so an inf in, uh, immune recovery inflammatory syndrome um, or immune reconstitution um, inflammatory syndrome. And when, when I've seen it in our patients, it's somebody comes in fine and really very quickly shows us that, in fact, they were developing influenza or paraflu or in one gentleman who died last year, it was both. Um, and then, again, on the rarer side is also what I think is cytokine-mediated and really on the spectrum with engraftment syndrome is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Again, someone looks fine one minute, they're kind of short of breath, most of the time they aren't coughing up blood, they're probably not coughing at all, they're just blue. And because it, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is another, you know, the, the, as soon as the capillaries, capillaries bleed a little bit, you've lost your oxygen interface and they can't keep themselves oxygenated. Maybe it responds to steroids or maybe it responds to any number of things that we've tried, or maybe it just gets better with enough time. One thing that can temporize people until it gets better um, is to use uh, uh, factor 7A. Um, I've used it both IV, and you've got to push the dose. The first dose that you use because you're worried that they're going to have a stroke is almost never enough. But then if you dose escalate, you can, you can stop the bleeding, and their oxygen perks up within minutes, and you see that you've stopped the process. And they need to keep being retreated until they cool down because it's, it's a Band-Aid. It's not a cure. I've also used it through the tube, which sort of uh, more local, so you don't have to use as much, and you maybe have a little lower risk of having some, um, some clotting difficulties after that, but uh, it, it also works quite well. Um, and again, when it works, when you know that you've got diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and you treat it with factor 7A, the bleeding stops immediately. So if you've hit the right dose, it actually stops, and you know, to the point where you wonder if you should just go ahead and extubate them. They're, they're completely fine. Don't, but. Um, <clears throat> and then the other risk is graft failure, so prolonged aplasia. In the auto setting, it can happen, maybe there's just something wrong with those cells, right? You've got somebody with either multiple myeloma or lymphoma, they've gotten a lot of chemotherapy, and yes, you gave the right dose, and they looked good, and you put them in the freezer, nothing bad happened, but their graft comes in slower than it should. They're not day nine, they're day 11 or 12. You're biting your nails, so I give them some more cells, they start to perk up so you watch, and then they get better really slowly. Probably an unmeasurable, or not, not easily measurable, um, inherent defect in that person's uh, hematopoietic progenitor cells, maybe mediated by prior therapy, or maybe related to their hematologic malignancy. Processing failure, we tell people we know if we put this many cells in the freezer, you shouldn't graft on day nine. But, I, you know, again, so it, and, and it works over and over again. But could there be some error in the way that the freezing happens? Absolutely. Uh, we do all that we can as any, you know, like in the same context as blood banking to minimize any possibility for errors. Um, but it is, 
it is manipulation of their stem cells. And the other thing that we've seen in a couple of cases is trafficking issues. So you give the stem cells and the, uh, that day the patient gets sick, like really sick, like C. diff, colitis, like when their white count goes up to 42,000 and they tank sick. And that happened in a, in a patient with multiple myeloma that I can think of and her cells didn't engraft. Well, by day 9, 10, 11, when you know this happened and you know that in that cytokine milieu, the cells were probably not trafficking normally to bone marrow because the cytokines that the body's producing in response to stress are mobilizing the bone marrow the same way I tried to do with GCSF before transplant. So those patients engraft late. If we were able to get enough cells ahead of time, we can give them a boost to their cells and they'll recover nine days after that. But we can't control that. Um, we had a gentleman recently in the ICU who had a germ cell tumor, got chemotherapy, got lots of fluids because it had cisplatin in it, starts screaming that his legs are so swollen, they hurt, and we have to quit giving him this fluid, we're killing him. And we look, and he has got clot up to, the, to just below his renal arteries. And he's gotten his stem cells and he's gotten his chemo, and you're like, God, I wonder where that went. I mean, really, where is that chemotherapy now? I mean, he's, he, he isn't moving anything that went down to his leg. What if my stem cells are down there? You know, I mean, it, so, and he did. He engrafted late. I have no idea biologically what happened. But he got a boost of stem cells and then engrafted nine days later. So some, it may have been cytokine, I don't know what. But some, sometimes host factors, patient factors that are really beyond our control influence the way the cells migrate. And so we tell people that, yes, there is a chance that we'll do everything right, you'll do everything right, everything will be perfect, and the cells won't engraft. And in which case, we're looking at three or four months before you create enough cells on your own. And I've, it's happened here, and I have to say, they're not part of the 1%. Usually the patients recover and leave the hospital, which is sort of, again, um, uh, testimony to the care. So after autologous transplant, 70% of patients that die, die from the disease for which they were transplanted. So relapse remains the number one cause of why transplant doesn't work. The next is <clears throat> infection for 20%. 7% um, will have, that's not what that says, is it? Um, so here it looks like it's 7% infection and 20% other. I think those are actually reversed. Um, rarely we'll see second malignancies that happen as a result of the chemotherapy. Those are usually myeloid neoplasms um, and organ failure accounting for 2%. Again, kidney, um, liver with sinusoidal obstruction, VOD, veno-occlusive disease of the liver, um, as a result of high-dose chemotherapy. Um, renal failure, although reversible, can compound it as well. Aloe, I'll just point to some of the differences. We're taking the cells out of the donor instead of out of the patient, so they haven't seen chemotherapy. The stem cells should be better. But they're collected the same way. They're mobilized with neupogen instead of with chemotherapy. Um, some places freeze them exactly the way I do the autos. We don't. We infuse them fresh. It's a little bit... Once in a while, you get a donor that doesn't mobilize very well, and their patient's already been conditioned, and you're sort of, so there, there is a little bit of risk with it, but you also have a much less toxic product without the DMSO, and graftment's about a day and a half sooner, and you don't have any of the DMSO-related toxicities. Patient is conditioned with a similar myeloablative regimen 
often, although now we've learned that we can get benefits of allogeneic transplant in terms of the immunologic mediated graft versus leukemia or graft versus tumor effects um, without ablating the bone marrow, that the lymphocytes in the transplant can actually fight for themselves. Um, but they get some combination of chemotherapy and usually radiation before they receive the donor cells. Uh, here is a fresh infusion, although they can be frozen as well. <clears throat> so going back to what I need to get a person to transplant, I need a disease I can cure, I need a patient that can make it through it, and I need a donor, and I need a donor that can happen in the right amount of time. And in the gold standard is an HLA identical sibling. Now we have matched unrelated donors that do just as well. Um, however, ethnicity determines what the chances are that you'll have a match in the unrelated donor registry. So it's probably highest in Japanese individuals who live in Japan because there are a lot of Japanese in the registry. It's a homogeneous patient population. There's prob they probably have the highest chance of having a match. And there it's probably upwards of 80%. Caucasians, they say it's 60%. It's not the Caucasians in my clinic, though, I have to tell you. They, it's 60% of my patients don't have a match, maybe 30. African Americans, again, the numbers say it should be about 20%. Our numbers are not that good. Occasionally you get one, and if, they, if an African-American has a match, they probably have 400 matches. And you're like, wow, this is like you know, a, a field day. But most of the time, um, in terms of having a good match in the registry, not so good. Cord blood, because the cord blood is less mature, it's not going to try to fight off the host, and they're immunologically less um, stimulating, so that people can tolerate having mismatches. And so having a cord blood available probably 80 plus percent of patients will have a cord blood in a registry that they can use. But it's a little bitty thing. I mean, it's what you get out of the umbilical cord right after a kid is born. And if you're a six foot three, 240 pound man, it's not gonna cut it. And so we've worked at trying to figure out how we can double up on cord blood and it works. You know, you can get them to engraft a little faster if you pick two. One of them always wins, hopefully not the patient, but you can get them through it. But the cost of maintaining a cord blood registry is, is expensive. And every cord blood product that's procured on the part on the, for a patient is paying for this system to be in place to have cord blood banking as an option for people. They're enormously expensive. So cord blood is a good option for kids, for little kids, because they can engraft off of a single cord. By the time you get into doing do double cords for a large adult, it's expensive and it's a little dicey in terms of whether they'll recover quickly enough. So <clears throat> now um, in, with the ability to do haploidentical transplants, uh, we now have a donor for about 90% of people. So HLA is inherited um, from each parent, chromosome six. You get one copy from your mom and one from your dad and it's random. And so each sibling, you got two from, with the same parents, um, also not something you can count on, but um, if you have the same parents, you get one from each person randomly. So 25% of the time, one should get the same copy from parent to child. Um, each parent to child, though, you'll get one from your mother. So you and your mother are going to be half-matched. And if your mother's 49 and you're 29, you're good to go. Same thing with the father. Um, and then uh, if you have a child who's old enough, um, they, you've got, they will be a half match as well. So 
20 years ago, we couldn't get the half-matched transplants to take. We would reject them, the patient would reject the transplant, or the transplant would reject the patient, cause horrendous graft-versus-host disease, really leaving no cell in the body um, unscathed by it. Um, and we have really good immune suppression, so we would immune suppress patients to the point where they wouldn't get graft-versus-host disease, and invariably they would develop usually a viral infection and succumb from viral infection. We couldn't make this work. Um, and in the past 10 years or so, our colleagues from across town have developed an approach where you give nothing for immune suppression and let the cells in the graft, the donor immune cells, wake up, um, reactivate or activate, replicate, and give high-dose chemotherapy at that peak activation and proliferation. And the chemotherapy works best on proliferating cells and goes in and deletes the ones that have been activated by alloantigen. And the other half, I mean, some of it's sort of a mystery still, but the other, the, the half that the haplotransplant wasn't bothered by, they're left alone. They recover. The stem cells are pretty quiescent. They recover. So immune reconstitution is actually not so bad. They do have a couple problems with viruses, but they're manageable. Most of the patients will reactivate CMV. I have a feeling that that reactivates during this peak proliferative response and the, the CMV um, uh, reactive lymphocytes are deleted along with all the alloreactive ones. So we see a lot of CMV after haplotransplant, but by nine or 12 months afterward, it stopped reactivating, they're okay. BK virus, which is responsible for some of the hemorrhagic cystitis that we see after transplant, which can be really devastating, reactivates in most patients after a haplotransplant, but again, actually pretty manageable. Um, so with that approach, we can now get a transplant for a lot more people. Um, we can't get it for everybody, um, either because they didn't really have the same patients and parents and they aren't really, there's, there's not a haplomatch or um, uh, the donors are sick or that, you know, my child is too small or I have antibodies to my child from pregnancy and childbirth. Those are things that make transplant, even with a haplomatch, potentially not feasible. <clears throat> so. Unrelated, um, so these are the donor options that we have. Do, unrelated, um, the outcomes now are about as good as they are with matched sibling, which is the gold standard. Um, with either unrelated, matched, or matched related, we have the option of using donor lymphocytes. So if the patient starts to relapse or tries to reject the transplant, we can boost the donor immune system uh, with a donor lymphocyte infusion. Um, cord blood, they're available and they can tolerate mismatch. The problem with it is they're pricey and they're little. We talked about those. And there's no DLI. So they start to reject, you, they reject. You request another cord for $70,000. Um, and uh, you don't get much in the way of graft-versus-host disease. Um, it's on par with a well-matched sibling. And HAPLO, we talked about, it's faster. Anytime you get a related donor, it's going to be faster than having to go through a registry. So you have somebody who you might have a month window to get a transplant in. Getting some related donor is usually what you need to do to do it in a time frame that's feasible for them. So the same reactions in an allo donor that we have. Um, and I already talked about that, sorry. Okay. Adverse events among unrelated donors um, happen. None of these should land someone in the ICU with the exception of splenic rupture or anaphylaxis or HIT. 
which none of which were observed in these unrelated donors, and probably in the setting of a related donor where you're a little looser on who, who um, is accepted because you can be. Um, if, a, if a donor accepts more risk for a family member than you could ever ask an unrelated anonymous donor to accept. So some of the risks with related donors are probably either more frequent or more severe because of um, comorbidities. We've gone over most of these. The risks of engraftment, again, engraftment syndrome we talked about is more common. Iris with viral pneumonia. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is more common here because we use TBI. And TBI, because of damage and the cytokine release that happens after radiation, can cause diffuse alveolar hemorrhage more commonly in the allo setting. Steroids are the answer there. And graft failure, um, either by rejection, um, this loss of stem cells because they just weren't good is less of a problem with healthy donors, fresh infusions, and you can usually get a backup option because you can get more cells from the donor. Um, give me, I'm going to go ahead because we have like one more minute here where I can... Uh, am I going, I'm going backwards, I'm sorry. Causes of death. Primary disease in aloe is relapse in about half of patients. And here we see graft versus host disease come in as a big player in terms of morbidity, um, infection, um, and organ failure. Um, unrelated is a little bit shifted away from relapse. Again, there's some differences that allow for more potent graft versus tumor. Um, and um, Again, with aloe, we have the option of a non-myeloablative um, transplant. And although the conditioning effects on the patients are less severe, um, really the potency of the aloe response and immune reconstitution does not make it a gentler procedure. Um, so indications for transplant in the United States, mostly AML and MDS. For, for allogeneic transplant, mostly myeloma, although a lot of non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma for autologous transplants. Um, so, and then um, I'll just end by, in the United States, I'll point out the annual number of transplant recipients is rising in the green, the aloe. The auto is interesting. Where it spikes up early in the 90s were breast cancer. We were doing a lot of autologous transplant for breast cancer. It actually was an effective form of therapy, um, but because of some uh, basically fraud in the way the clinical trials were conducted and other advances in the way that we give chemotherapy, it's no longer the standard of care for advanced stage breast cancer. But that's so that you see the spike up and then it dropped back down. Um, and then a slow, steady increase in the number of autos for primarily myeloma, and the reason it's increasing isn't because myeloma or Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are increasing, but because we're now able to safely, to get older adults safely through the transplant procedure. So with that, I think we're out of time, so I'll stop and see if there's any questions. Thank you. Thank you.